Let's go James chapter 2. If we could get the lights up in the room a little bit, please. James chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we think that knowing God is like the chief end of man and enjoying him forever, if you want to quote a catechism. All right? um, but uh, if the scriptures are what he uses to make himself known, then not pressing into the scriptures is a terrible way to go chasing after him. You, you just, it doesn't work. And so if you don't have a copy of God's word that you can call yours, take that physical one home, and I'll call it the best part of my day. Um, so we put down our James series about a month ago now uh, to kind of focus on some other good things for a while. And it's, it's been a busy month, right? We walked through uh, Holy Week and Easter together. Uh, we knocked out an elder installation last week. Uh, and so when it comes to, to a quote-unquote rest period, we got some stuff done, all right? Uh, we, we, we handled some things. Uh, but now I, I think it's time to kind of refocus our efforts back on a book of the Bible, a letter that we're discovering, at least I think we're discovering, is incredibly practical for God's people. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure there is a more practical New Testament letter than the letter of James. Um, if you're new here, James is a letter written by a guy named James, the half-brother of Jesus, a guy that the gospel accounts tell us wasn't a fan of Jesus and his Messiah claims uh, early on. All right? In fact, uh, the story goes that James tried to get Jesus to stop preaching what Jesus was preaching, get him to come home, take care of the family, all of those kinds of things. What are you doing out here? You're embarrassing us. That's the kind of tone that is struck in the Gospels. Uh, but all of that changes after the resurrection, right? James comes to believe and to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. He becomes a leader in the early church, and he is ultimately martyred or killed for preaching the Gospel. So something changed in James. The resurrection is what changed him. And so all of that's to say, all that's to say that James is a guy that we can probably, I think, learn some things from when it comes to following Jesus in the real world. Like, he did that. He did that on an incredibly deep level. Incredibly practical things can be learned from James. But it, it's not just his life experience that's informing this letter. The context informs quite a bit of it as well. Uh, our best guess at the dating of the book of James is to place it somewhere in the early to mid-40s A.D., all right? So why in the world would, would that ever matter? Uh, well, it's, when we know that it's after, post, some persecution that began to ramp up in the early church through Saul and the people following after Saul. Uh, and so James's audience has an incredibly realistic understanding and even an incredibly realistic expectation of the trials that they're going to face for following Jesus. James lived it. His audience lived it. We don't actually live it as much as they lived it, but they, they understand it well. In fact, he has to deal with that in the first part of the letter. That's most of what chapter 1 is about. We also know, we also know that this is only a few years, just a handful of years even, after God had begun saving Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And before that, uh, the church was just kind of made up of only one religious background, the Jews. And there were some people in that background that had kind of more leaning towards a, 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 a Greek culture. We would call them the Hellenists. And then there was some in that group that kind of had more of a cultural leaning to uh, the kind of Hebraic thought and, and Jewish stuff. All right? But it 
was still just one spiritual background, the Jews. And so a very, very real question that had to be answered, had to be answered in the early church was, were the Jewish ceremonial laws, all the stuff that God commanded the Israelites to do in the Old Testament, were they now a part of Christian practice? Or did they only serve a purpose for an old covenant Israel? That's the question. Did the, did the non-Jewish Christians have to keep the Jewish ceremonial laws about diet and about circumcision and about ritualistic hand-washing and about the Sabbath and the feast days in order to be considered good Christians? Were those things necessary to make God happy? Now the formal answer to that question comes at, a, at an event that we call the Jerusalem Council. They, they got together, they hammered out the answer to the question. And the answer they gave in that moment was an emphatic no. They don't have to keep the ceremonial law. Observance of the ceremonial laws were meant to mark out the Israelites as a distinct people and to teach them of the separation that exists between their sinful selves and an infinitely holy God. But Jesus steps onto the scene and he closes that gap for us by his own perfect righteousness accredited to all those who belong to him. That's the gospel. In the new covenant, God's people are no longer identified by our diet. God's people are no longer identified by some physical marking on our bodies. We don't draw near to God because of anything that comes out of us or is on us. We cannot do and we cannot maintain. No, we are brought near by the sufficient work of Jesus on our behalf. Now the church eventually gave a crystal clear answer to that question. But that, that answer comes in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem Council, we think, happens in about 48 or 49 AD. And so placing the letter of James before that moment on the historical timeline, the New Testament timeline, well, it means that the debate is still very active, right? There's a lot of opinions swirling around. A lot of people are kind of jockeying for being most chiefly heard and being seen as the biggest authority on the issue. And so what exactly is on the list of things that Christians should do, ought to do? What exactly is the relationship between our faith and our works? Do our works support our faith? Do they maintain our faith? Do they prove our faith? Or is it something else entirely? And that's the question that James wades in to answer. Over and over and over again throughout this letter, he's going to make the argument that authentic faith has an effect on you. It changes things. But it doesn't just change you. It also has an effect on, on everyone else around you. See, despite the maligned press that faith often gets outside of the church, in the Bible, faith is not some abstract, ethereal thing. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it uses that word. And neither is it some kind of dogged, clinging to wannabe realities when evidence would prove otherwise. It's usually the way it gets trotted out by people who don't understand. Now see, biblical faith is a confident trust in that which is trustworthy. But it's a trust that is tangible and has tangible effects both inside of you and outside of you. To be consistent with a more biblical understanding and biblical worldview, it would be better to describe faith as something more like a sledgehammer. It's going to leave an impression on whatever gets in the way. And so right before we shut things down 
kind of mid-March, uh, we looked at the last two verses of James chapter 1. Uh, James gives what I argue are three kind of categorical uh, kind of impressions that authentic faith uh, tends to have on God's people. It affects how we speak, it affects how we look at and interact with others, and it affects how we view sin. Those are kind of the three big categories that he lays out in the last two verses of chapter 1. Uh, and, and so I also told you back in Mark that that uh, back in March that James was only kind of addressing those things at 30,000 feet. Um, Well, now, starting this morning, we get to begin looking at him addressing those things on more of the ground level. And he's going to give it significantly more detail. Um, So look at it with me. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. This is my brothers. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? All right, let's call time out there. So James opens up the chapter by saying, my brothers, you remember what I told you back a month or two ago? about what we ought to be thinking whenever he rolls out that term of endearment, whether it's brothers or my brothers or the much more serious, my beloved brothers. It's a buckle your seatbelt moment, right? James is about to launch into some things that they need to be launched into, all right? Um, One, because he he brings out this kind of term of endearment because he, he needs to remind them that all of this critique is coming within the context of his incredible love for them, right? It's really, really easy to start to think that critique is outside of or foreign to love whenever we're starting to get a tongue lashing about something we deserve a tongue lashing for, right? But James reminds him, no, 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 my brothers. My brothers. But also, too, I think he uses this term because James is shrinking the gap that exists in their own minds, this perceived gap between the leaders and the regular folk. But James isn't setting up some two-tier system of Christian obedience here. This is something that all of God's people are called to do. It's a posture that an authentic faith in Jesus is going to necessarily produce in us. And so what is that necessary posture? He says says that we ought to refrain from showing partiality. If you have a different English translation, it might say that we should show no favoritism, right? Now some, some have isolated that verse from its context and they just, they just absolutely run to the end zone with it. Um, they've used James 2.1 as an argument that there's absolutely no place at all in the church and no place amongst God's people for ever showing honor or devotion to someone else. Um, and, and that argument come, tends to come in a couple of different forms. you got the more extreme end of things. Uh, and some have tried to, to say that even things like family and social structures ought to be ignored now. Parents and children, husbands and wives, bosses and employees, governments and citizens, they argue that salvation ought to be chiefly understood in political terms, right? and that the cross is the ultimate act of uh, speaking truth to power, right? and that wherever Christianity exists, these other, other structures, they ought to be not just ignored, but seen as null and void. They're no longer valid. And so by extension, to allow those 
structures to perpetuate instead of actively tearing them down is to ignore what Jesus is doing in his new heavenly kingdom. Like I said, that's the extreme end of things. But on the less extreme end of, end of things, there are many, many more who look at James 2, 1 and argue that regardless of who someone is and regardless of what that someone has done, all ought to be equally stripped of title and prestige within the specific context of the church. And this verse is one of a handful of verses that was pointed to uh, back in the days of the Protestant Reformation when, when the Reformers were critiquing the hierarchical system of priests and bishops well, within the Catholic Church. It was, a, it was a system that was incredibly, incredibly corrupt at the time. Men literally purchased their way into the priesthood or purchased their way into bishoprics, uh, mostly because those positions came with a lot of political power and a lot of clout and prestige in their local community. And it, was a, it was a good way to advance yourself by getting into the ministry. And so during the Reformation, many of those who were pulling away from the established church, they, they tended also to call for the leveling of all titles and positions. But while the Protestant reformers were right, I think, to critique such a blatantly unbiblical system, um, this verse, though, doesn't, doesn't really help their argument. Um, James doesn't leave us guessing as to exactly what he means by partiality. He actually gives us a hypothetical example. He spells it out for us in detail. So look at verse 2 again. It says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, so James paints a picture for us, a hypothetical picture of two different kinds of people showing up to the worship gathering. You got the rich man and you got the poor man. And in this hypothetical example, James says that upon entering, you're bending over backwards to try and show honor to the rich man. Oh, please, sir, sit right here. I've got a special seat just for you. Come on, it's all yours. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with what we would normally think of and describe as hospitality. This, is, this scenario isn't about an usher showing somebody to their seat. In the first century Greek world, the seating chart mattered. It mattered immensely. It was the physical manifestation of the pecking order. The, the best seat in that culture always and was supposed to go to the most important person in the room. And the worst seat in that culture was always and supposed to go to the least important person in the room. And James says that upon entering, you go tripping all over yourself to try to get the rich guy to sit in the seat of honor. Now the obvious question is why, right? Why would you immediately go to all that trouble? But James doesn't leave us to guess at the, the motive either. That was not up to our own interpretation. At the end of verse 4, he says that it's because you have evil thoughts. His point his point is that we're all inclined to bend over backwards to try to show honor to the rich man because we're all trying to manipulate the situation. We're showing honor because deep down inside of us, we're really, really hoping that honor gets returned. Soon. But the rich man isn't the only one coming into the worship gathering. James contrasts our actions towards the rich man with our actions towards 
the poor man. So not only are we not bending over backwards to try to show honor to the poor man, but James paints the picture here that instead we bend over backwards to try to reduce the influence of the poor man on the room. You can't possibly sit in that special seat. Here, move down here. Stand in the back. Sit at my feet like a slave. Again, always trying to manipulate the situation so that our own honor and our own prestige is the one that's built up. When James says, show no partiality, what he's talking about is the core level instinct that exists in every single one of us, each and every one of us, to be a respecter of person. The natural bent in all of us to give or withhold preferential treatment to others based on their ability or inability to give that preferential treatment back to us. But regardless of the sin nature that we're all born into, James says that an authentic faith in Jesus ought to kill any remaining traces of partiality in us. But why though? Right? Like, why is that, why is that even important? Surely social hierarchies are, are, can be a good thing sometimes, right? Like, why, why, would that, why would that be a problem for God's people? Well, James is going to give us a few reasons, actually. Four, by my count. And the first one is buried at the end of verse 1. Did you catch it? It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Comma, what does it say next? The Lord of glory. All right, so follow me here. The idea that you would continue to try and advance yourself like by playing games with the earthly glories of people coming in and out of the room, the things that other people bring to the table, all while you are already privileged to know the one who is infinite in glory, it means you're misunderstanding something. It means you're misunderstanding something massive. And I actually have a visual aid to show you this morning. I, I brought visual aids today. You're welcome. All right. Got some slides. It's going to be great. May I have slide number one, Mr. Paul? All right, this is what I call the scale of popularity, social popularity. Isn't it fancy? Incredibly scientific. All right, so you got the first bar, that's you, and you're doing pretty good. I mean, you're not the coolest guy ever, but you, you hold your own, all right? And then you got your friend. Your friend's also pretty cool, but notice, slightly below you, all right? Not, not quite as cool as you, but definitely cool. All right, then you got, in the yellow, you got your town mayor. I mean, the dude won an election. I guess people like him, all right? All right? And then in the red, you've got your, you know, just run-of-the-mill rock star slash astronaut slash football player, right? Everybody loves that guy. He's in the stratosphere, all right? And then down in the purple, you got the beggar. You're a nice, compassionate guy. You never put the beggar at the bottom, but as long as he's just a little bit under you, you're in a good place, right? That's how the world works, all right? And then on the bottom, on the far right, you got your brother. And your brother is so lame, he registers in the negative, right? That's how that works. Or is that just my family? Okay. And so the way the world tends to operate, we work and we work and we work and we work and we work to try and leverage all of these relationships. Not because we're looking to serve all of these other people, but because we're trying to manipulate all of these other relationships in order to serve ourselves. That's what James is saying. As soon as they walk in the room, you're playing the game. Trying to figure out how you can bump your score up a little bit. And if it means they have to bump theirs down a little bit to get there, oh well. Constantly chasing after a better position on the scale. 
But then Jesus steps onto the scene and the scale changes. Can I have slide number two, please? All those other bars are still there, but you can't see them anymore. Like, maybe they register a little bit. Not enough to matter. See, the Lord of, the Lord of glory walks in the door and all of a sudden, well, to continue worrying about the pecking order of all the other bars on the graph is to kind of miss the entire point of the moment, Right? Just nonsensical after that. In James's hypothetical example, our mystery host, whoever they are, certainly not us, our mystery host, they have to ignore the infinitely more glorious Jesus to continue acting in the way that he does. To continue chasing after those things, you've got to either not know Jesus or ignore Jesus. Both of those are a problem, Right? But there are other reasons why an authentic faith ought to kill partiality in God's people. I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think we need more reasons than that. But James, is, James will give us a few more reasons. The second reason is found in verse 5. Look at it. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Uh-oh. <laughs> so we got a, a my brothers. And then we have an elevation of that, right? My beloved brother. So James has not only doubled down on the endearing term, he has elevated the endearing term. So what's got James so worked up? We'll look at the rest of the verse. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So not only does the infinitely glorious Jesus changed the scale of who does and does not deserve the, the, the most important person in the room title. Not only is that true, but James says, hey, um, guys, uh, last time I checked, the gospel is that the one who is infinitely glorious, willingly and lovingly made himself known to little old you. Welcome to another episode of James and Paul Sound a Whole Lot Alike. At the beginning of our series, I told you that there are people out there who try to argue that James and Paul are on, they disagree with each other and that at the end of the day they should be seen as opponents preaching very opposite gospels. But that couldn't be any further from the truth. But I told you that, you know, to preach this letter faithfully, I would need to show my work along the way. Um, welcome to exhibit fill in the blank. It's there too. Here we go again. This is pretty much exactly what Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1. Speaking to a church that thinks that they're bringing intellect to the table and philosophy to the table and rhetoric to the table. Speaking to a church that thinks that they are the, the smart ones in town and the, the clever ones in town and the, the, the most eloquent ones in town. <laughs> Paul says, hey, um, you're aware that not many of you are wise by earthly standards, right? You realize that God is not picking his team based on intellect, and he's not picking his team based on the social scale. If he was, you wouldn't be on the team. Neither would I. James says, hey, you know what kills sinful partiality in God's people? 
rightly understanding that you yourself are a direct product of God refusing to show partiality. Like that, that ought to do it, right? You're aware that it wasn't partiality that got you in the door, correct? See, according to the Apostle James, to continue chasing after status, to continue chasing after a platform in this way, proves that you not only misunderstand who Jesus is, it also means that you misunderstand the gospel. You misunderstand what it is that God has already done for you. In saving you, he has specifically and intentionally, he has joyfully elevated the poor man. But it actually gets a whole lot heavier than that because James keeps going. Points to a third thing that ought to kill partiality in this. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. So not only do we do you not see Jesus' glory correctly, and not only does it cause us to misunderstand the gospel, but another thing that gets lost in all the social politics and all the gamesmanship is that the poor man gets an incorrect illustration of the gospel the poor man in james's hypothetical scenario he's come into the worship gathering instead of hearing the message that by his grace jesus will raise up poor man poor men just like him he's instead shown a message that his position is all that anybody else in the room sees Church, those who misunderstand the gospel will almost always cause others to misunderstand the gospel. It's like a plague. Oh, but what if the preacher that morning just nailed it, right? Like what if it was one of the best sermons he ever preached and the gospel presentation in that sermon was one of the clearest uh, gospel presentations that that community had ever, ever known. Surely the words on the preacher's mouth were more important than what was going on in the seats, right? Right? <laughs> Yeah, it is more important. I'll stand by you on that statement. The words of the gospel are indeed far more important than any illustration of the gospel, period. Always and forever, period. In Romans 10, Paul was emphatically clear that there is a logical chain for how people uh, end up believing and calling on the Lord. He says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him in whom they never heard? And how will they hear unless someone what? Preaches. Yes and amen, the message of the gospel is a proclaimed message long before it is an illustrated message. And make no mistake about it, God can save the hypothetical poor man in this little scenario regardless of how terrible the rest of the morning went. It doesn't matter how much our ineptitude skyrockets, he's still God. He's not chained to that. But it could also be true could also be true that the hypothetical man poor man walked away from that gospel presentation without ever actually listening to it because God's people convinced him before it even started that it wasn't worth his time that's also a very real possibility hear me clearly we cannot tear down every wall that people have built up between themselves and the gospel and even if we could the gospel is offensive enough all on its own they just go build some more walls we can't tear down every wall. We can't. But church, we ought to care incredibly deeply about putting up walls ourselves. 
We ought to care deeply about creating man-made walls that are not necessary. Walls that are erected not because of the right offense of the gospel, but as barriers that kept someone from even getting all the way there to the gospel to deal with it on its own terms. That ought to terrify us. Whether we build them intentionally or unintentionally, it ought to humble us. It ought to inform a number of things about how we carry ourselves around non-believers, should it not? Sinful partiality proves that we misunderstand who Jesus is. And sinful partiality proves that we misunderstand what the gospel is. And sinful partiality proves (laughs) that we're creating gospel misunderstandings in others. James has one more thing that he thinks ought to kill partiality in God's people. Look at the rest of verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So in addition to these three gospel reasons, James gives us an incredibly practical reason too. And it's because eventually the game always bites you back. Haven't you learned that yet? He says you're working so hard to kind of massage the egos of those who can give you something, but they're playing the game too, and they wouldn't hesitate at all to drop you down a few pegs if they got the opportunity. What are you doing? What's worse, he says the, the more earthly glory people have, the more they tend to even see God and his glory as a problem for themselves. So in James' hypothetical scenario, the rich are more inclined to blaspheme against God, he says. They're more inclined to set themselves up as his enemy in this world. And so the question that James is implying is this, why would you ever want to be one of them? What are you thinking? Look what they have to give up. Congratulations. Good job. You gained some earthly glory. What? Not only what are you going to do with the rest of your day, but what are you going to do after that fades? I don't know if you notice this, but earthly glories always have a shelf life. They always fade away. And those who have positioned themselves as God's enemy all for the sake of getting some other folk in the room to think highly of them, there's coming a day when God will make that right. The Bible is incredibly clear what their end is. It won't be a pretty day for them. And so for all of these reasons, James says, my brothers, show no partiality. Why? Well, because it misunderstands the glory of Jesus and because it misunderstands the gospel as it has been freely given to you and because it causes others to misunderstand the gospel too and because it misunderstands the ultimate end of those who don't know how important it is who think that there's something better out there. I can go out on a limb this morning. I'm guessing that just like me, probably exactly like me, you're sitting there thinking, running over a long list or what seems to be an endless list of moments in your life where partiality is the only correct word to describe things. Sure, I'm alone on that, right? What do we do? What do we do is we recount the list. I mean, the book, is the book of James ultimately about 
showing us how big a failure we are and then calling us to just do better. Is that, is that his game? White knuckle our way into a posture that God will finally be happy with? I don't think that's the game. I don't think that's what James intends for us. James has been saying all along that an authentic faith in Jesus creates an effectual change in people. No, it's not overnight. And yes, it grows over time, but it changes, uh, changes, it's a change that can be seen. It's a change that can be measured, actually. It's a change that grows over time and causes you to look more and more day after day like Jesus. The one who, by the way, if you're a Christian, joyfully called you his own when you were a bigger mess than you are today. But rightly seeing Jesus and rightly understanding what he has done for you, it changes what you value and it changes what you chase after in this world. And one of those things is how you see and treat others no matter where they might fall on temporary man-made social hierarchies. Who cares? It's fading. Whatever you have to invest yourself to, to gain something here, you got 80 years tops. And it's gone. That's on the best day. See, biblical Christianity is not now, nor has it ever been, a do-better religion. Not what Jesus called us to. It has always been, though, and it always will be a you-are-mine-so-let-me-show-you-what-I-love religion. And in being rightly related to Jesus, he will make you more and more and more and more and more and more like him. So if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response this morning is the same as it is every single week. We, rep- we rightly repent of the sin that we see. Maybe you, need to do, maybe you need to walk down that list. Feel the weight of it. But rightly repent of that sin. And then secondly, lean in to what he's revealing about himself in this text. And this week, I think he's showing us that how, how great the news is that he is no respecter of person. Isn't it wonderful news that he's not playing the games that you and I are often tempted to play? I need him to be that kind of God. We get to know him and be known by him. Not because he, we, we had something he needed or wanted from us, but because he is, he is good and because he delights in raising up the poor man. As a fellow poor man, I, ooh, it's something to celebrate. And so our response this week probably needs to take the shape of deeply celebrating who he is and what he has done for us. Think you think you had something he he needed from you? Nah, nah, he, he just loves you. And he joyfully makes himself known. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing another song. That's the time that we set aside each week to kind of give you space to respond rather than merely rushing out of here to the next thing we want to instead take a, an intentional moment to translate the head knowledge into something more than that we'll give you three verses and a bridge if you want to talk i'll be down front if you want to talk grab me let's go what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of jesus yet what about you can you respond to god's word and the answer is absolutely yes you do that by meeting 
Jesus. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, all are separated relationally from God, and that because of our sin, we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls it death. When the Bible describes you as the poor man, it has significantly more in view than earthly wealth. You are a spiritually poor man on an infinite level compared to an infinitely holy God. But God is rich in mercy and he loves the spiritually poor with a great love. And so just like the Bible teaches that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible also teaches that it is by Jesus' grace that the dead are made alive. And that the poor men are lifted up to the seat of honor. How does that work? How does he pull that off? The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. And his righteousness in our place is what pleases God and closes the gap between us and God. His death on the cross is what makes satisfaction for our sin. And now as the king who has conquered sin and death, he was raised from the dead. He conquered sin and death. He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can respond to Jesus this morning by meeting Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's go. Let's talk. What if you're here this morning and you're, you need to respond in some other kind of way? Maybe you need to formally join our church family. Maybe it's time to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to some call that he's placed on you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. I don't know. I know I can help, though. Let's talk. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Let's all respond together to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for a faith that acts like a sledgehammer and a letter that acts like a sledgehammer. Give us grace. Cause us to wisely and truthfully go down the list of moments of partiality. Not to, not to be defeated, but to rightly upend. Not because it's just the better way for the world to work, but because you are good. You have first done for us. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Call men and women into your kingdom today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.